Ladies and gentlemen, we're shoveling. And according to the Weather Network, we're shoveling lots of snow. I'm Matt McFarland. This is the growing season right here on News Talk, Saga 960 AM. And I'm pleased to be joined by the round table of McFarland's Jack and Lynn, <laughs> mom and dad, join us. Ladies and gents, how you doing? Very good, Matthew. Yeah, very good. Awesome. So we are pleased to be joined this week by Mr. Chris Sinclair of the Weather Network. Theweathernetwork.com is the website. You know that. Because if you're listening to the growing season, then you're obviously interested in some manner of weather because that affects when and how and if you are able to garden or at this time of the year, will, will you be shoveling? He joins us. We're going to tee up the winter. Now, originally, we were going to tee up the winter and we were going to also chat about cataclysmic snowstorms. But at about the 24-minute mark of us just chatting about the winter and just generally chatting, Chris is one of these guys where you can tell just by how he speaks. Passionate. He's super passionate, Very loves his job. You got it. So we didn't even get to the cataclysmic snowstorm stuff. We're going to leave that for a later show. Dad, what, sometime in January, you're thinking? You know what, Matthew? The best thing to do would be keep an eye on the weather, check with Chris. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and find out. When is there a big doozy coming? When there's a good snowstorm yeah. coming or weather event. And then we will uh, pair it with that. Okay, perfect. Awesome. Yeah, so we, we actually pre-taped Chris, Chris's conversation. He's super busy over the weekend, so it's just tough to grab him live. All right. As well as we're going to chat about artificial Christmas trees versus real Christmas trees. There seems to be many people in either camp on either side of this argument or this debate. And which side do we fall on? Well, you'll actually hear in our little chat about this. As well as we're going to get into all manners of Christmas stuff. This this show begins to kick off our Christmas season stuff. You're going to hear our normal jazz music is gone. We're going to be dropping in some of the, some of the Christmas stuff. But she's Lynn. He's Jack. I'm Matt. This is the growing season. We are so pleased to have be joined by Chris Sinclair of the Weather Network. Keep us locked in here on News Talk, Saga 960 AM. Ah, uh, yes, it's that time of year. This is the growing season on News Talk Saga 960 AM. We are the McFarlands, Jack, Lynn, and Matthew. That would be me. And uh, we're, we're, we're into the Christmas season. You can hear the Christmas music in the background. And for us, the McFarlands, we have always done the live tree. Okay, by the way, visit showbits, growingseasoncanada.com. Click on showbits. It's the visual accompaniment to the show. We've always done the live tree. I've never, we've, we've never had the artificial in the house. And when I moved out and began my own Christmas traditions with my wife and now with my wife and my two children, that tradition of the live tree has carried on into our household. Now, my wife grew up with the artificial tree. That was what they had for years and years and years. And dad, you and I had the pleasure of going down to Canadian Tire's Noma house last year. And it was quite saw, something. Eh? It was unbelievable. What was it? 200,000 lights or something? It was ridiculous. But the point being is that now when you see the level at which these artificials have come, it's it's breathtaking. Mom, were you telling me that the original artificial tree was like goose feathers or something spray painted green? Yeah, in the 19th <laughs> Artificial trees. I, I didn't look at the history of this yet, but they are, from what I, what I glanced at, the artificial trees started to become popular in ni- the 1940s and 1950s. And what I read, and I read wait, it wait, quickly. Wait a minute, here's what I don't get, okay? Like, what made them magically decide that they wanted to start artificial trees when they had all sorts of these all over the place, Matthew? I don't know. Like I, I, I absolutely don't. This is the part of the especially whole... artificial. Did you see the early artificial? Oh, they're stuff? awful. Well, the, what they were made from, I guess they would have a tree frame and metal, but the actual what was supposed and to be needles were goose in. feathers spray painted green or yeah. painted green. And so the lumber industry, the timber industry, was booming back in those days. Well, that's we, when subdivisions. You would came have had spruce, being. pine, and fir galore everywhere. It would have been I, everywhere. I have no idea what they were doing. Well, there's some, now maybe, and they look so bad. Too. Now, is it me? Maybe that's what it is. Maybe back then there was not there were there were no Christmas tree farms. Maybe it was look. If this is a tree farm that's being devoted to the building to building materials, we're not going to waste it on some Christmas tree. Do you know what, Matt? British right? Columbia. You know, yeah. I, I I agree, but British Columbia. I'm, I'm pretty sure it's British British Columbia. You could check that for me. They have a a law on the books that you're allowed to cut one conifer of some kind for Christmas on Crown Land. And I still think it, it exists today. 
Who's you? Anybody that Anybody. is a Canadian citizen has the right to cut a tree on Crown land. They have to get a, you know, like a basically a... Like a tag or a uh, permit. In order, it's like, same idea with all the other things that you can think of from from down south where they have tags for crocodiles and or alligators, yeah. right? Or yeah, whatever yeah, yeah. it is. Yeah. Same idea, Matt. You would have to have a tag. But if it's Crown land... And then if you get, you know, you can have a right to cut one tree down a season. Huh. Now, okay. whether or not you Hold know on. it's crown land, that's Hold the only on. problem. Speaking of whacked out rules, you ready to hear a whacked out rule? I didn't believe this. Okay. I, one of my drum students told me this. I'm not even kidding. Check this out. For our audience, go look this up. This is legit. You go in to buy your groceries. Okay. Let's say you have 26 loonies. You can only pay for your groceries. The maximum amount that you can pay with a $1 coin is $25. Really? If the grocery store or whatever accepts the $26, that's, that's an illegal transaction. I am not kidding. Stupid. It that's is weird. so stupid. And the student told me this and I'm like, there's no way that that's real. Look it up. You know, sometimes you just want to get those 26 loonies out of your purse because it's but getting so heavy. There's got to be some reason why you're not allowed. Now, first of all, this this but this rule would have had to have been implemented. When did the loony or yeah, when did the loony come in? The I, 90s? Remember the, I remember the paper dollars. So like yeah. the 90s, right? Yeah. So this would have had to have been amended in the 90s. You know how they have those hor- those carriage horse and buggy rule laws where you're like, oh, you know, you can't park your horse and buggy between the hours of this and this. Yeah, that's a great rule. Nobody's driving a horse and buggy anymore. There's some rule down in Toronto, and I'm about not the pig, sure about where. Pigs, right? About pigs, not being yeah. able. There's a rule Running that up you, Queen Street. Yeah, like who's going to run pigs up Queen Street? No, now? they still okay. have the right of way. But what I'm saying, <laughs> I am not lying. <laughs> oh, the swine are running! Let's Stop let the traffic go. on the Gardner. The pigs are crossing. But the point is that with the loony rule, this came in in the '90s, I think. Whenever the loony came in, if they're going to put a rule like that in place. It's got to come in with the currency, right? Sure. So this isn't an old rule. This well, is a new rule. I, I said must be a reason. Uh, British Columbia. I wasn't sure if this is necessarily true for Ontario. This is what my reading I found out, Matt. So it's they say that you legally can if you again you, you don't have to go, get a tag. You have to almost like, like a tag like idea, you and you can cut tag. You can cut one. Yes, that idea, Matt. And nobody does this. Uh, but I sound it, but not many. Okay, so hold up a second though. But in in the city of Toronto or wherever, is there any crown land anywhere? Where is that? Where does that exist? Off the but, top of my head, they can't I touch any. They can't touch anything in the green belts. It would have to be land that was no. Wasn't. What is crown land? Crown land is anything that is owned by the government that does not necessarily. They don't build on it. It's usually going to go into parks or something like okay, that. Okay, so green you're belt. telling me that I can go into Albion Hills Conservation? No, area you can't. Cut down a tree. <laughs> no, I didn't say. I said if it was British Columbia. Have you seen British Columbia, man? It, there's. <laughs> Thinking conifers everywhere, yeah. as far as the eye <laughs> yeah, can yeah. see. It's population control. Cut it. Yeah. We have lots. So, yeah. so, Matt, that's why the trees are so different like out there. That's why they're cutting and using things like Douglas fir. Right. It's because they're using trees that are on, uh, that are available to them at the time. Okay. So they're not going, and people are not generally growing. Colorado blue spruce on crown land, unless they get, you know, permits to actually physically do this. Because Matthew, Matthew, after all, you know that uh, they, people are going out there today and they're actually planting uh, the uh, various conifers and so forth, uh, producing Christmas tree farms on what kind of property, Matthew? Hold on a second. This is a, this is a bit of a gray area. Okay. I googled, can you cut... Dead trees on crown land. I didn't say dead trees, though. What I was actually Googling is where is there crown land in Ontario? I didn't come up with that yet. That's wild to me. Well, George, I don't think it exists. George Crabe's land is crown land, and he, you know, he died, so it reverted back to crown land. Okay, so I can go to his place and just cut, just cut a tree down. If you have a permit and you check into it first, you don't want to get arrested for it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'm just saying, it's, again, one of these rules. It's one of these gray areas and you just have to deal with it. GrowingSeasonCanada.com is the website and we are chatting about the differences between real Christmas trees and artificial Christmas trees. Okay, so here's what's ending up happening is this is one of these topics where if you celebrate Christmas, you are probably firmly on one side or the other. 
So the artificial group, they would cite, well, I don't get a live tree because I have to go out and cut it in the snow and the thing drops needles. You got to remember to water it. It's super messy. The people on the live tree side would say, well, I like to go out and cut the tree down. It's part of the tradition. I like the snow. I love the smell as well as I'm not contributing to the environmental damage that these artificial trees are basically a part of. So you've got arguments. And it takes like 400 years it for does. them to break down in, in the landfill. But the artificial group, the, the artificial supporters are the guys that are saying, yeah, but you're also cutting down trees, live trees to basically have in your home for three to four weeks max. And then these trees are basically tossed to the wind. Well, now they're mulched. Now they're mulched, and the live supporters are want to express their views on the fact that these trees are grown for a certain purpose, and that purpose is to be cut down, and these trees are creating oxygen prior to them being cut down. Like these trees aren't planted and then and then the next year they're cut. These things take 12, 15 years to get to that size. They're great for wildlife, Matthew. Oxygen and wildlife. We talked last year about how you've got hydro right-of-ways where it's an area where it's just garbage land that you can't plant anything on and they're using them for Christmas tree farms. I recently told a student this and she was shocked to learn that they're using hydro right-of-ways, areas around electrical wires and whatever that are being used to to grow Christmas trees. She's, you know, I'm, I'm surprised she's surprised, Matthew. But for the most part, Matt, we, we plant about, we have planted about 350 million Christmas trees, which represents roughly 1% of all the trees on earth. We okay. have about 3 trillion in that range. Okay. So every year they would go out and they would physically cut down and that would be also people who cut their own. Somewhere in the neighborhood of 25 to say 35, 30 million trees, that kind of idea. And then they would plant one or two for every one more cut. Or more. Right. So this is what's amazing. So they're not going in there and just cutting this tree down and not doing anything to put things back. Right, Matt? Yeah. And as Keith said, Keith Lowry last year told us, there are many people that this is their entire income for the year. Like they do well enough that this is their entire income for the entire year. They, this is tied into the, this is the the real life Santa Claus, where you basically have, I mean, his would be one night, essentially, of just getting, getting busy. But these Christmas tree growers, it's five to six weeks of just sheer craziness. The rest of the year is making sure that those trees are attractive enough and kept in good enough condition that when they're cut and shipped, they are completely saleable. Sure. And Matt, when they when they cut them, they try to cut them after they have hardened off to go yes. into the winter. Now, if, we've talked about this on a previous show, but it does bear repeating because we are a horticultural-based show. So are you saying that you are injecting these evergreens with Viagra? No. <laughs> okay. What does this mean? So what's happening is that the tree, before it goes into winter, it will make it cute and it's... it's covering on its needles thicker or and so forth. So it will do things like that to get ready for the winter. Okay, so the tree is basically shutting down, but it doesn't shut down because they are evergreens, Matthew. Yeah. Okay, so the they're thing at is... They're half capacity. They're, they're running like with your battery on low, that kind of idea. Intentionally. Intentionally, to keep themselves good and hardy over the winter time. Yeah. I mean, everything, Matthew, about that tree, including its shape, its way the branches are done, is everything is there so that they can get through the winter in one piece. Because remember, they have most of their foliage on like all other deciduous trees don't have. Right. Okay, so that's important. But Matt, uh, going back a few years, down in... No, 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 no. You have an answer hardening off. Hardening off is where the actual uh, needles and... It could even be in deciduous where they will, the, the actual branches and so forth will actually physically close their stomatas for winter. Right. So, but hardening off on evergreens, though, takes place way before that. Sure. They're actually, do, they're actually starting in about August. Okay. And by the time you get to mid to end of September, the hardening off process is complete. Okay. So one of the things that my dad, I'm not sure why he's failing to mention this, but when you see evergreens put on brand new growth, it is the loveliest, cutest thing ever. Because they put on three to six inches of this brand new growth. And that growth is exceedingly soft, like, like, like cotton ball soft. It's tender. It's very tender. And 
it's a lighter color than the rest of the tree. So you get these, let's say it's a, let's say it's a Norway spruce. You're getting this emerald green spruce and then these like lime green <laughs> new shoots. And what happens, those lime green new shoots generally come on in middle of May, early June, June somewhere yes. in there. Okay. And then. It has almost like a little brown sheath on it. A little it. brown sheath on it. And then what happens is as the summer goes along, that lime green begins to turn the emerald green, the same color. And it'll get harder and harder, harder the foliage. And, harder and, and that's harder. called hardening off. That's called hardening off. But Matthew, there are certain, if you actually cut these trees down after the hardening off process is complete then you will probably have a tree that is going to retain its needles longer in your home. Okay. So don't most people cut them down? No, they don't. Some of these ones do not. Why? Some of them because of, you know, sales and so forth. They're cutting them down with the... Before the things harden off, yes. And you have no control over that. You don't know. They may have cut down a certain number thinking that's all they would need. And then their sales were much greater than they realized. And they will start cutting down trees Earlier than they should be. I remember Keith saying that they began this process of cutting the trees in middle to late August. That's what I just said. Yeah, August. Yeah. So you're saying that people do this sooner than that? Well, it depends on where they're located and so forth. Okay, Matt? So everything is all based on location, location, location. So trees down in, say, the eastern areas of our province, of sorry, of Canada, yeah. would probably be cutting them at a different time than we would be okay. cutting them up here in you. Ontario. I got you. But Matt, the thing is, once they've hardened off, then when you would cut them for, for Christmas trees and so forth, they have a certain life that they're going to last. Okay, as long as they're kept outside, they, ask, they last for a very long time. Because that wound clogs up. Yes. It basically saps over. It, it, it clogs up. The xylem closes. Yeah, and they just, whatever, whatever water they have in their systems, is, is in their system. Is in their systems. And because they are compressed and netted up, they're not, they're, they're not wicking off as much water through their needles and everything's sort of contained. They and they're not drying off like, as much. They go into carbonite, basically. Carbonite freezing almost. <laughs> well, yeah, you know what, yeah. Matt? You're not far off there because... In actuality, when, when you would buy a tree and you brought, let's say they did put the cut on it for you, right? Yeah. So what they would do is they normally put this little cut about half, three quarters of an inch from the base of the actual trunk. Yep. And by the way, these trees are dead now, okay? So yes. saying you're trying to keep them alive. No, is kinda, you're not keeping them alive. You're keeping them uh, long enough so that they won't shed every little needle, or single needle they're they on, have. Uh, they're on palati- uh, was it, uh, palliative care. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So, so basically yeah. circling the tree. If you are bringing the tree home and you're not using it right off the bat, they recommend you to stick it in a bucket of water, okay, okay? until you're ready to use it. If you're not going to do that, then reinstate the, the cut so that it gets rid of the clog, so the thing yeah. will draw moisture within your home itself. And we were always told when I was selling Christmas trees, it was always, put if you're going to put the cut on it, whenever you're going to put it up, try to have the tree in the house and in the spot at least 12 hours before, if not 24 hours before. So let's say you're going to decorate it on Sunday. You can bring it in on Saturday, throw the cut on it, get it into the stand, water the sucker, and have it sit in the room that it's going to be in because the branches all begin to settle, right? Everything begins to, gravity takes over, right? Where these people, you bring in this tree in from the cold, you've, you've tossed a cut on it. Well, these, if it's cold out, those, those branches are rigid. They've been sitting out in the cold, right? Everything is, all that sap is now a lot more rigid. Whereas if you bring it in 24 hours in advance, that sap begins to loosen up and all the branches begin to settle more. But the problem is, initially, they draw a lot of water, especially for Piles. the first the two first or three two or days. The first three days is just yes. suck, 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 suck. But the problem is, if you let the water get down past the cut line on the bottom of the tree... Clog reforms. Clog reforms, yeah. and that won't draw water, and it will dry out like hell, and you you know, you know probably do that raining effect with yeah. the needles falling down. Now, people don't have this problem when they use artificials. I agree. I agree. Okay, so there, there would be a plus, is that there yeah. isn't this care necessary. Sure, and uh, th- there's a lot of care necessary to get the tree from its little gaffer all, yeah. the, all the way up to the, the sizable thing that you can physically sell. I agree, yes. But, but Matt, the, the smell that people are, are getting off of their artificials, that's just basically... Um, well, hang some of the air fresheners that you hang in your car. That's yeah. basically what you do. Yeah, your pine tree air It's freshers. flame retardants yeah, and yeah, plasticides. Yeah. And, and, the, and when you are done with them, they say that generally speaking, an average... Uh, artificial Christmas tree, I was going to say fake, artificial Christmas tree lasts in the neighborhood of six to eight years. 
Yeah, I don't know the names of some of these companies, but there's there are some like boutique bespoke. You can get a custom made artificial. Like you can basically they they will give you the raw tree, and you say, okay, this is what I want. I want a fur. I want this percentage of the branches dusted down with whatever, and blah blah blah. You can get Christmas trees artificials up into the fifteen hundred two thousand dollar range. Absolutely not. Well, I've seen them. I've seen you. We were down and we saw these fifteen hundred to two thousand dollar Christmas trees. And th- listen, we're horticulturalists, and you got to go up. Like I know it's fake because I know because we're in the Noma house, right? But you got to walk up real close and have a look, really close. Because if you can fool the if you can fool the horticulturalist man, you're really doing a good uh, job. Totally, absolutely. But Matt, as far as live Christmas trees goes and so forth, or just even the holiday season. How many trees every year do you think are cut down to make wrapping paper? 30 million. Mom, what's your guess? I am not sure, but I would, I'm going to say 45 million. 50,000. Oh, I was close. Okay. Not so even close. You guys are like way too far out okay. in the oh. left field. So when you say 50,000, what types of trees are they cutting for this? I would imagine something on the softwood kind of thing in, in the poplar line or okay, something so like that. Okay, so garbage trees. Sure, stuff that we would be using for pulp and paper, that kind of idea. All right. But Matt, here's the biggest thing. 4.3 million pounds of waste from wrapping paper is accumulated and gathered every year. How much of that actually gets to the landfill? million pounds of it. So 2 million pounds. I do not know what they're doing with it. Are they burning it or or I have no idea. And you can't recycle Christmas cards. Yes, you can. If they don't have foil. If they don't have foil on it, they're recyclable. Okay. But one of the rare. Envelopes. Is the envelopes. Envelopes are fine. uh Yeah. Yeah. They're fine. Even with the uh, adhesive on it. No, that's fine. But they said that as far as most things go, the only thing that really gets completely recycled are Christmas cards. Just don't put the foil on them. But Matt, I, I don't see them going around and actually but physically. Christmas wrap, you, you can't. Mm, well, if you wrap your gifts in, in the brown paper wrap. But the decorative wrap. No, no, no it's not. The inks and then a lot of the wrap has foil in it. Yeah, that, you can't recycle it. That's awful. No, it, it isn't. It isn't. I guess, you know, if honestly they can cut those blasted populous <laughs> tremuloides. <laughs> yes, they can. They There's can. a lot. Nervous. Thanks by that for yeah. Okay. So th- therefore, even if you go with the real tree, so you're saving the environment there. But if you're wrapping your presents in the brown paper, wrapping paper, no, then you just go on and guess. You might as well just not bother anyway. And a big thing here, Matthew, the bulk of our Christmas trees are grown here in Canada itself. But all the artificial, approximately sixty to sixty-five million dollars every year, is bought out of country and they come from China. Okay, so that's not that's not income that's being pumped into our community. No, back into our economy. Christmas tree go. farms, selling Christmas trees like you did, Matt, all of that pumps money into our economy. North America, Matthew, there's approximately between part-time and full-time employees in the neighborhood of 50 to 100,000 employees involved in I, the- Listen, I got to tell you, like- there's not one job from artificial trees. No. Well, years. Well, no. Hold on a second. Come on. Like, on no, the they, actual, think about no, the artificial. Canadian Tire would be bringing on holiday staff that would be in charge Compared of Compared to yeah. a Christmas tree, like a real live Christmas tree. I don't have the numbers, but I'm telling you, Canadian Tire is bringing on holiday staff to sell Christmas trees and lights. For sure they are. I don't know, Matt. You go in there. Oh, yeah. Way yeah. What, what do they have, like half of one person or something no. in there <laughs> taking care of it? But I'll tell you, though, being involved in horticulture... Between the selling of Christmas trees and then getting involved in the like high end seating for sale, that kept me through the winter. Yeah, right. Like there was enough. And did you money enjoy it? Be, oh, I'm like, I loved it. The, selling Christmas trees, legitimately, honestly, I mean, I enjoy landscaping. I absolutely love it. I enjoy the designing. I enjoy the brutal physical nature of of landscaping. But the selling of the Christmas trees in a nursery situation. When you look outside and it is dark and there's Christmas lights everywhere, the moon is in the you know, like you know, high in the sky and it's one of those crisp Christmas nights and you can hear Christmas music on and you're literally walking through an aisle and you're surrounded by oh, Christmas trees. I love it. It is by far and away 
that is some of my favorite memories when it comes to working in horticulture. And you know what? Janice Santberry, if you're listening, please say thank you to your father, Charlie Sant, for that. Because I worked for Charlie for four or five years selling Christmas trees. And I, first of all, I can't tell you the number of presents for girlfriends that were supported by Charlie Sant. I also cannot tell you how much that helped me through the winter. So, Matt, I have a couple questions for you. Do we have time yet? We have 20 seconds. Okay, Matthew, explain the crack that they put on a tree. Okay, so what happens is you get your tree, uh, if you're going to, if, if, if you're going to put it up, you would put the tree, you would put the cut on the tree. Then what we would do is we would physically raise the tree off the ground, okay, and then we would slam it down on the ground, the, on the trunk. And that it makes a crack sound on the pavement or on the whatever. We used to do it on the interlock inside the actual greenhouse where we were selling the trees. And you're going to see needles rain down because what happens is these trees can t- like hold these needles in. They've been they've been wrapped up, even if they've been opened up and, and then hung. There's still loose needles in there. We would crack the tree again. Do this, raise it up, slam it down. You know, Dad, I'll, I'll put up a video on the. Can I do one last thing? Be quickly before I go. Really, really quick. Okay, so when you bring this tree indoors, yeah. One major thing that you must take, uh, make sure that you're not doing to the tree is to keep it away from hot air vents, fireplaces, and so forth, because you don't want to have any issues, especially with fire over the holiday season. Even drafts coming in from from doors. Will affect it. Yeah, you have to try to keep it in a fairly consistent climate. You can keep the needles on for the most part, but after all... This tree is dead. It is. It is very dead. It is dead. dead, yes. That's a wonderful place to press pause. joined by Mr. Chris Sinclair of The Weather Network, theweathernetwork.com. Chris, I guess my first question is, you guys just, just recently delivered the bad news to, uh, to uh, Southern Ontario. Uh, it's, and, and it's interesting because when I, when, I, when I read the winter forecast for Southern Ontario, it kind of reads like putting uh, hot sauce and peanut butter together. There's a little bit of this, a little bit of that. What the heck are we supposed to expect here? That's that's a really good analogy of it too. It's, you can it's use wonderful. that, Chris. It's not very appetizing, Matt. <laughs> not at all. It, it, it you know it, it's it's like real estate. It's all location, location, location too, um, and, and and it's 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 going to be um, you know the, the forecast has great certainties in that there will be this really strong pool of cold air, uh, but it's going to sit over um, Saskatchewan and Alberta for most of the winter, and and. And it's that polar vortex that we talk about all the time, and it's just situated to the west. And and what it does in laying the configuration of the atmosphere is it puts us on a track, particularly in southern Ontario, where we'll oscillate from periods of seasonal and seasonally cold weather to weather that runs above seasonal. And we've actually kind of seen that in the past um I'm going to say six weeks, like as we came out of uh, October and into November. November was, as a rule in southern Ontario, above seasonal as far as temperatures go. But there were a couple of stretches of three or four days uh, where the temperatures went really kind of chilly. And the winter's going to behave in a very similar fashion to that. So it, it opens the door for us to say, perhaps at the end of January, that temperatures have been um, above seasonal for January. And you have to keep in mind what the average temperature for January is. It's usually below freezing. So even if the temperatures are above freezing, it doesn't mean that it's going to be um, sunny and warm all the time. Uh, it, it can have instead a tendency to be maybe, you know, one or two degrees above freezing, but raining. So it's going to be, uh, the best way to describe it is, is we will get a fair series of um, systematic storms that come through the Great Lakes, and they may be those kind of storms that give you 10 or 15 centimeters of snow, um, but then it warms up two days later and it all melts. Uh, very similar to what a maritime winter can be like. Okay, so Chris, Chris, hold on. No, 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 no. We're, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna spar here for this. 
so are we ever going to get the classic Canadian winter again? Because I feel like I feel like my my father, who who basically consistently says, you know, when I was young and here we go, right, it's uphill both ways to school and the whole thing. But it feels like our winters and this is going to dovetail into into uh, our, our chat a bit later when it comes to cataclysmic snowstorms. But it feels like our winters are just becoming this very much um, a, sort of like a cacophony of different types of, of, of precipitation. Like you're not getting the classic four months of sustained blankets of snow. Not even a white Christmas kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we had a white Christmas last year. We did. Uh, yeah. uh, and again, again, it's location, location, location too. Um, you, you know, because where you are in, in the southwest of Ontario, your weather is evolving. I, I mean, it is changing and it's part of our our climate making its its change um and and so you, you can almost think of it as like our great canadian winter of uh, four months of cold it still happens in sudbury and timmins but it doesn't happen with the regularity anymore uh it's more of a rarity than than a regularity in especially in southern ontario but and even more so in in the, in the eastern ontario but even just to give you like the, the 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 really funny story about the dis you know what how much distance plays in this and and we often forget to think about the size of our planet but the distance between toronto and ottawa is about as the crow flies about 400 kilometers ottawa had one of its snowiest winters ever last winter and and yet you know you come further to the south and the west and it wasn't and it wasn't that case and even when you look on a map ottawa's not that much further north than toronto so it's really a location thing one of the thing that drives snow so much uh and i have to say more in the greater toronto region when we start to think about kitchener waterloo and guelph and orangeville and places like that is lake effect snow and if we have a milder winter um, the lakes will not freeze over. They, they didn't freeze last year. Um, and that's why we, we managed to get some rather significant snow effects, but all of it being driven by lake effect, because it only takes an outbreak of, of you know, minus 8, minus 10 degree cold air for a day uh, to get lake effect snow to develop if you've got the right winds. Sorry, I didn't get off on want to get off no, on the no, track. No, 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 I didn't want to get off about answering your question about are we ever going to see those old fashioned uh, winters where it's, you know, from you're locked into cold from uh, mid late November until March. Yeah, I don't think we will see those. They, we will perhaps see them, yes, but they won't be the regular feature of winter. They'll become the anomalies, which I think they have become now. So, Chris, in a, in a recent chat we had, uh, one for basically going into the new year, you had talked about that Ontario was basically similar to what was going on in North Virginia 15, 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. Do you you still agree with that? Yes, I do. That was a short, quick answer. (laughs) I stand by my story. (laughs) No, I mean, as as weather patterns change globally, um, as as the atmosphere warms dramatically, I, I mean, again, last year the record, the warmest, you know, year on record as we take observations all around the planet every day and then you know total them all up i know it's all it's it's it's, it's a numbers game but the temperatures are getting progressively warmer and that does have a, an impact on what your seasonality becomes i mean uh, you're interested gardening and is is everything in landscaping um we're missing the shoulder seasons where we live now um in in ontario we don't have those springs that we used to have, it seems to go from winter, winter, winter to all of a sudden it's, it's not, it's, it's late spring, not, not early sp- spring. I mean, we go from yeah. cold, 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 all of a sudden it's 16, 17 degrees and there was no shoulder season and fall makes the same type of, a um, uh, an appearance as well. It goes from warm, warm, 20, 20, 20, 20, all of a sudden the temperatures have fallen off to five degrees, but we missed that whole part where we had the mid-range temperatures. Uh, and, and those are all little signals that have been becoming more regular in the past 20 years. Uh, and, and I found it to be very noticeable as somebody who kind of monitors the weather every single day in Ontario. 
So then, Chris, why are there so many blasted snowstorms and weather events going into April now? Is that just part of part of the trend? I, well, no. I mean, it, that's the, the the thing is. I mean, it only takes just like a, a, a push of colder air uh, to to give us snow. But what's happening is, as the as the um, irregularities become greater in the atmosphere with more warm air available, the um, the actual pattern of the jet stream as it makes its way around the northern and southern hemisphere can become more amplified with with greater uneven warmings of the uh, of the of the global air masses, and so it gives us these um, these these uh, higher. I guess if you looked at it as a bell curve, these greater leaps, it's not a smooth curve anymore. It's one that's more erratic, that has higher peaks and valleys. And climatologists who have who studied the evolution of our climate uh, say that, you know, one of the signals of a warming climate is that these peaks and valleys become much more accentuated. Uh, and, and, and the accentuation of these peaks uh, lead to more severe weather outbreaks. Yeah, more severe storms. And, and if you even kind of, if we kind of just think back to some of the storms that we've seen this year, they they're, they're, they have had a tendency, especially when we talk, talk about wind storms uh, in Ontario, the wind storms have become a little more frequent and a little more severe. And that's, that's and that, and the wind is all dependent on, on um, great differences between uh, the temperature of air masses. We think about uh, there was a storm we had in October uh, that gave us that flooding on the shorelines of Lake Erie, yeah. and that was all. The flooding was all driven by how strong the winds were initially out of the southwest. Uh, and a couple weeks before we had that particular event on Lake Erie, we had a very similar event on the shores of Lake Huron, and that was driven by very strong winds that had come out of the north northwest on Lake Huron. So uh, th- those type of dramatic wind events become a little more pronounced, evident, and frequent. So, Chris, is what you're saying is that we should all be getting into roofing? (laughs) (laughs) Roofing is a good one to get into. (laughs) Fix all the blasted shingle roof. We're with Chris Sinclair from the Weather Network. Mom? Chris, you were talking about, or we were talking about the Great Lakes being open. So, when these streamers blow in across the Great Lakes and blow snow onto us, do they lower the water levels of the Great Lakes? Not really significantly. Um, the, the, the amount of, the, it's a 10 to 1 ratio when you measure water to snow. So 10 units of snow equal one unit of water. So it, 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 is, it is drawing it up. But if you were to take, um, like a, if you took a cubic meter of snow and melted it, you would be surprised at how little water there actually is. So they're not losing a lot of water then? They're not losing a ton. And here's what happens. It, it, it's instantly recycled back into the lakes because it will uh, it'll accumulate as snow in one area. And then when the spring comes, it will melt back down and then flow back into the Great Lakes. So the lakes aren't losing an inordinate amount of um, water that way. What we're, we're actually finding is, um, I mean, the water levels are all controlled by conservation authorities in the lakes. Um, but we're finding, uh, and particularly in the springtime, the flooding that they get on you know, on the Ottawa River Valley and the high water levels that we've had on Lake Ontario, it's, it's a management issue in a sense, but it's also because we've been producing so much lake effect snow that we're taking the water out of the lakes and putting it in the watershed and melting that back down into the lakes. But we're also adding the regular snowpack that falls in those areas that traditionally see a lot of snow. Uh, and are adding that back in as well, which is what can get the water levels so high in the spring. So, Chris, on top of uh, 2020 being about uh, this pandemic, <laughs> we're we're continually seeing um, notifications about the polar ice caps melting, and nothing mm-hmm. nothing sends fear into my heart like this because you know, <laughs> yeah. on top of the fact that you can't go to the house without a mask on, and you know, our kids have been home for <laughs> close to a year here. Now we have polar ice caps melting. How is this going to affect us? Uh, it will change weather patterns dramatically. Uh, there's um, there's uh, the Gulf Stream that runs off the Atlantic coast of Canada, which is the warm waters from the Gulf of Mexico. It's, it's basically a river of warmer 
water, a current that runs in the Atlantic Ocean, runs up the eastern seaboard. It runs uh, south of Greenland. It's what gives England its temperate climate year-round. But the trouble with the melting of the ice caps is that, and, and there is, I mean, there are huge amounts of water, fresh water, and it's all fresh water stored in the ice caps in Greenland, on Ellesmere Island, on Baffin Island in northern Canada. When that water melts, it changes the salinity level of the water in in the ocean, which which is highly saline because it's salt water. And, and the Labrador current, which is a cold current that flows to the south, will actually become a stronger current because it'll have more uh, less saline fresh water, so the density of the water changes. And so the concern is, when we melt the ice caps, that it will... Um, diminish or eliminate the Gulf Stream as it passes eastern Canada, which would dramatically change the weather in Western Europe, and particularly through the British Isles, Ireland, uh, into France, Belgium, uh, you know, Denmark, uh, the Netherlands, those countries that border on the North Sea. Their weather would become much less temperate than it is. So they would actually begin to experience um, a more dramatic winter, uh, which they're not prepared for. I mean, they don't. Uh, the homes in in the UK don't generally have central air uh, and central heating the way that we're set up here because they have a more temperate climate. So, I, I mean, on a on a on a scale like that, that's what the melting of the ice caps does. Uh, aside from rising sea levels and all of that, it will actually alter um, the salinity of the oceans. Therefore, it will alter the way weather patterns behave, the way evaporation processes occur uh, saltwater and freshwater evaporate at different rates of speed at different temperatures. So it it changes weather patterns globally. And so then to dovetail that, because my dad's jumping up and down to ask a question, but so to to dovetail that, I mean, and not to sound selfish and and narcissistic, Mm -hmm. but then how does that affect us in in Southern Ontario? Would we notice a drastic difference? Would we get more of these hundred year storms, Chris? Um, we would, well, 100-year storms are becoming far more, I mean, you can't even call them 100-year storms anymore because they're happening on a frequency of five to seven to eight years now. So the, the frequency of 100-year storms is, is, is something that was fun to say 15 years ago, but the, that frequency is gone now, and they are becoming more regular. Ontario had more tornadoes last year than it's ever had in, in, in a one-year period ever. Um, so that type of severe weather would become more common in Ontario. Yes. Chris, you're always the bringer of great news. (laughs) But it's, I I mean, it's, and and the hard part about this, I do a lot of talks about climate change and how it has an impact on our weather to to a lot of different organizations. Um, The Insurance Bureau of Canada, as a group of insurers, has been aware of this for a long time, and they've been working really proactively to, to start to do things to, to make sure that people are better protected, but also to make sure that, um, that communities uh, and civil governments are, are being proactive to defending our communities against some of the changes that will come. I live in Kingston. Uh, we just finished this community, a project that took about uh, seven or eight years to complete. But Kingston's a very old city, uh, one of the oldest in the country. And the the infrastructure for the uh, runoff sewage water, not like your toilets flushing, but, you know, uh, waste water. drains from rainfall. Yeah, we're all uh, ancient. They were all over 100 years old. The last time they were updated was back at the turn of the century. Uh, and I mean the 1900s. Uh, so they just finished completely uh, retrofitting all of that, putting all new in, but also back running all of the waste sewage from homes so that they wouldn't back up into the homes and then um, one of the problems we have here in Kingston, when there's a lot of rain and get a lot of runoff, is that that uh, ex- overwhelms the system and it runs raw into the lake, which pollutes Lake Ontario. So anyway, they've, they've, they've done all of this planning, but in doing all of the planning to stop this runoff and, and to better manage uh, water runoff and waste runoff when there are extreme weather events, they've also done all of the planning on thinking, well, where are we going to be in 50 and 75 years. So they actually ran all the projections and the computer modeling so that they're, they're, they're ready for storms that will come in the future. And more and more communities are doing that. And, 
And that's, you know, they're just changing uh, building codes and things like that. Um, you, you know, in Burlington, you, you're not allowed to build a, a driveway that's slant down to, in, you know, if your house is below the grade of the street or your garage, they, they don't allow those to be built anymore. And they, they've, you know, are fitting a special curb on the road so you don't get flooding in your in your garage hence into your house so all of these things you know, they're, they're taking these things into account and that's what we need to think more about is because we can't stop the change of our climate it is going to change <clears throat> we've it can't be stopped so therefore what we have to do is learn to adapt and and become more cognizant of it it's funny, Chris, that you mentioned the homes built below street level, because I know on our end, on the horticultural side of things, one of the big trends right now, I'm not sure if it's if it's in if it's in your area in Kingston, but one of the big trends is to put this artificial grass or turf down in your backyards. And we've noticed that with clientele, many of our clients that, that have this down, if their backyard slopes towards their house and their house is, say, uh, like below the grade level, so there's a big uh, slope towards the basement area, their basements are flooding because yeah, of course, but because this turf doesn't drain like say regular grass would drain or doesn't absorb the water. And so again, yeah. companies should be thinking about this where if you have these changing weather patterns, you're creating a huge flooding situation. Yeah, no, I mean, we need to be um, acutely aware of this. I was at a, a conference. This, uh, it was the United Nations conference a couple of years ago and, and they had some um, indigenous uh, people talking about how indigenous communities were built not before we came to North America, but originally how they were built. And they were built in unison with the way nature behaves, taking into consideration, you know, uh, we build all of our communities, or so many of our communities, we build them on floodplains. Well, they would never have done that because the, they they saw the way the land and nature worked in harmony with, with, with one another. And, and so they worked to to live within that. And I think that there's a lot of great lessons we can take from that uh, in, 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 in planning future communities, but also in taking a look at the communities we live in and how do we adapt to work and live within those communities, but taking into account the way that nature actually works. But you know, Chris, in, you, sorry, did I cut you off? No, no, I was going to say, because that's really neat in, in, in your line of work, which is landscaping. I mean, you know, having a having a canopy uh, is so critically important to so many communities. But so often, um, we 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 take the canopy away yep. for some reason. And yep. but the canopy is so critically important that the type of grasses that are planted in different areas are so important to the way that water is managed and and just natural flow of water on any particular tract of land. I mean, it's all. It's really important, and, and for a long time, and I think we're getting better at it now, but for a long time, we disregarded all of those natural rules, and, you know, like Joni Mitchell said, we, you know, we paved paradise and put up a parking lot. Absolutely. Yeah. But, you know, Chris, we did a show in past this past summer, and it was on large shade trees, and so anyways, they were saying that basically a very large shade tree on your property is equivalent to for cooling your home, even warming it in the wintertime as running, say, for the summer, 20 window-mounted air conditioners. Wow. One, Whoa, one, yeah, really? Yes, was it 20? One, yes, it was 20 window-mounted air conditioners for 24 hours a day. So it just goes to show you that the canopy is so crucial. And, and, Matt, and Matt, we also found out about lawns, just how much of a cooling effect that yeah, lawns absolutely. have. Absolutely. And they put, you get this, Chris, they produce more oxygen than our trees, our yeah, lawns. Lawns yeah. do. Well, I mean, you even look at the temperature anomalies the city of Toronto has vis-a-vis um, places uh, that are outside of Toronto. And, and that temperature uh, anomaly they get, and which is that they're always warmer, comes from all of the, the pavement. There's, there's nothing, sure. you know, the, it's, it's, it's the fact that there, there, there isn't enough of a canopy. And, and it's a well-canopied city, but that there isn't enough, that there, is, there are so many tracks of heat-absorbing um, pavement and concrete and and darkness everywhere and there's not enough green space which provides in the summer natural air air conditioning. Chris, do you think like with us being in gardening with the climate warming, do you, our growing zones are going to shift and we're going to be able 
to grow plants that now they can only be grown south of us. Do you think there'll ever be a time that there might be palm trees growing in downtown Toronto? Well, you know, it's not outside the realm of possibilities. I mean, there's palm trees that grow in Vancouver. Yeah. I can send you, I'll send you, I'll, I'll, I'll text you a picture that I have when I was in Vancouver for a snowstorm in January because it just looks weird to see, you know, palm trees with snow on them. Niagara. But, I mean, well. I, I mean, I'm sure, I mean, you you know, you know the, the, the temperature limitations that some hardy tropical plants have. And, is, you know, if the temperature doesn't stay below freezing for an extended period of time, it, they can survive. And that, ladies and gents, is that. Mom, Dad, we could have chatted with Chris Sinclair for hours. Yes? Days, Matthew. Days, days. Mom, this is your first time chatting with him. What do you think? I love chatting with him. He's so knowledgeable and so informative. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Now, you heard me make mention uh, throughout the interview, oh, we're going to get to our little segment with him on cataclysmic snowstorms, a.k.a. Snowmageddon. Well, we didn't get to it on this one. In fact, we have pre-recorded it. We're going to drop it in probably sometime in January. Once we get a decent snowstorm yeah, once, or if there's a weather really nasty event. one on the horizon, then we'll, then we'll drop it in. We just... We have so many weather-related questions, being that we're horticulturalists, and uh, Chris is the guy to ask and the guy to give us the answers. GrowingSeasonCanada.com is the website for all of your horticultural needs. Yes, I know the time of the year, but giving away a landscape consult slash design is a wonderful Christmas present. In fact, I have two that I am currently working on, and they are going to be Christmas presents for a client's property. So that's fantastic. Click on Contact or even TGS Tiny Gardens. That is our modus operandi on how to or on how we approach subdivision landscape. Many of you know that we end the show in a very, very specific way. There's a joke coming from me, followed by a throw to mom, followed by a throw to uh, the uh, the not-so-grumpy man now because we're out of the root topic. Thank okay. heaven. Yes. All right. This week's joke, guys. Why did the snowman want a divorce? No idea, Matthew. No idea. His wife was a complete flake. That's pretty good. Mom? Till next time, have a good one and Merry Christmas. Jack out. If you miss any part of our show today or any of our earlier broadcasts, don't panic. Just log on to our website at www.saga960am.ca backslash podcasts and look for and stream our podcasts of this show and any of our other great programs.